Colossians 1, 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing. Thanks, Ashley. Good morning, everybody. Wow. Welcome, everybody. We are squeezed in here. Well done making it to the 10. We do have a new third gathering called the Noon. You are more than welcome to check out at some point. Uh, but I just, I just want to say welcome. You're welcome here at to the 10. I'm so sorry that some of you don't seem to have chairs. If you have a chair open, would you please notify the individuals that are standing? Look, look at that. There you go. Seek those out if you like. Awesome. There you go. Um, welcome. You guys, welcome to Park Hill Church. My name is Evan, if you're new. My wife, Sandy, and I have the joy and honor, really, of leading this church. And we are walking through the book of Colossians, both here in Sundays and teachings, and also in discussions and prayer in our communities. We're walking through the implications of this book on our lives. And so quick backdrop, if you're just joining us. Colossians is a letter written by Paul to a young church. We're five years old. This church was barely older than that. Remember, this is like the first generation of any church. Brand new, this whole thing called church. And so Paul writes to a young church. Um, and the city of Colossae was famous for its spiritual pluralism. You know, pluralism. All these different ideologies they were trying to just fit together into a big salad bowl and call it good. Um, so the city had a well-known angel cult, which is interesting trivia. They worship invisible beings, plus popular magic arts. And then you got the Roman gods. And then add to that, in the salad bowl, you had non-Christian Judaism. And all of these things were competing with everybody's minds and ideas. And so you can imagine it was somewhat confusing to follow Jesus and to be in a big city with all these ideas and you're this little community, and you're like, who, who or what is God, anyway? Who, what is God? And what do we mean when we say God is creator? And why do we Jesus followers say that Jesus is the only way to this God? How dare we? Right? And, and in the face of all the other opinions, who are we to make such an ex exclusive claim about this man, this God-man, this Jesus, crucified, risen, we have a Messiah that we say is God? How dare we? in the face of all these ideas. And so these are the questions and the issues this church is wrestling with. This feels familiar to us now. This feels 
altogether very familiar, right? Colossians could be San Diegans. To the church in San Diego in 21st century, I write to you. And so uh, as, as a church in San Diego, we're facing these questions, the same ones, and really we want what they wanted. And that is how do you do this thing called being a human in a relationship with God? How do you do this thing? How do you mature, in Paul's words, mature in Christ? Because according to Jesus and Paul, that's the goal, maturity, maturity in Christ. This is why Paul writes the letter. Here's his mission for writing. He says, and Jesus Christ is the one we proclaim above all. And we do it by admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That's Paul's goal. Our maturity, yours and mine, in Christ. And it's not just Paul's goal, remember. This is Christ's goal. Because to be an apostle is to be like a sheriff's deputy, right? To be one of the 12 apostles who then wrote the New Testament was to speak with Christ's equal authority as Christ. That's what, that's what Jesus gave his disciples, the authority to speak his words. Which is why we have a New Testament that we respect, not just respect, but submit our lives to as God's words to his human family. And so, and because ultimately we believe these words contain like the best life possible. Flourishing, not the easiest, but the most flourishing, eternal, full life. Jesus called it life to the full. And so that's what following Jesus ultimately is. Being a Jesus follower means trusting that Jesus, the perfect God-human, knows how to be human way more than any of us. That's trust. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what Paul wants this church to understand above all. If there's a title for this sermon, it's Christ above all. Simply put, Christ above all. So if we want to grow as children of God in maturity, wisdom, power, patience, gratitude, all those good things, then what we need to know above everything else we can know is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority and center of the universe. No big deal. That's, that's, of everything you can know with your mind, that is the most important thing you can know. Jesus Christ is the, is the center of reality and the supreme ruler of the universe. Thankfully, he is more loving than we can fathom. So that's what today's passage is all about, Christ above all. And what we're going to find is that the more you understand and know Christ, the more you understand who God is, what God has done for you, and who you are. I, I submit along with Paul, we, you cannot know your identity truly apart from Christ. We cannot know who we are truly apart from Christ. And apart from the community of Christ, we are not autonomously defined. This is, how, this is what Christ comes to us to say. He gets to define who we are and who he is and how reality works. And, and as we say yes to this, we mature. We mature in Christ. In fact, the rest of Colossians is Paul unpacking the implications of this massive statement He's like, hey, since this is who Christ is above all, and this is what his authority and goodness is like, and how central he is to reality, that means, hey, only Christ gets to define what is true and good and beautiful. Which means, oh, you don't want to live against his teachings. Trust me. 
Trust me, because with him is fullness of life. And, and this goes, even if his teachings are uncomfortable, no matter how uncomfortable the implications of Jesus' teachings might seem at times, whether, you know, Jesus' teachings on money in a wealthy culture like America, his teachings on money directly confront our most prized idols. Whether it's Jesus' teachings on sexuality or power and influence or politics or whatever else, Paul's like, Resist the pull to disagree with Jesus. Trust me. Trust me. Submit to his teachings instead of your own opinions. Trust me. It will be flourishing for you. Why? Because what Paul will say, we'll see him say it, the grain of the universe runs in Christ's direction. And anything and anyone that stands opposed to Christ will not last. Only Christ lasts forever. He's the center of reality. He's above all things. So the invitation, come on, come to the center. Come to the center. Submit to Christ. Flourish forever. And, and it's, perfect, it's a perfect day for this sermon because the way you submit to Christ for 2,000 years, the way human beings join the kingdom of God is through the waters of baptism. And they're wide open in that six-foot-wide tank or whatever right here. Like there's never been a more wide-open door maybe, in your life than this moment. So, so, so this teaching will come in two parts. What we're going to see over the next half hour or so is part one, we're going to look straight into the center of the universe, which is this person, this loving person called Christ, Jesus Christ. That's the bulk of the teaching. And then part two is going to be verses 21 through 23, where we celebrate the benefits that come to us when we submit to Christ. So we're going to see Christ, and then we're going to celebrate what, it, what happens to, to people when they submit to this Christ. So let's dive in. Part one. You ready? Verse 15. Look at this epic first line. The sun is the image of the invisible God. So, so I, I love songwriting. That's an epic first lyric of a song. It's like great first line. And the, the ob first observation from this is by looking at Jesus, we discover who God is. Very simple, but very profound. What is God like? You look at Jesus, you find out. How does he feel? How does he respond to people? What does he, what does he have to say about the problems around us and inside of us? Well, you look, what does God think? Well, you look at Jesus, you find out what God thinks. So in the famous intro of the Gospel of John, John writes this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I don't know about you, I have all kinds of questions here. No one has seen God? Wait, does it seem... You know there's this whole collection of like 39 books before Jesus of people seeing God. It's called the Old Testament. It's the story of people interacting with God for many, many centuries called the Old Testament. So I don't know about you, but my immediate question I have for John right there is, what do you mean no one's ever seen God, John? What about all those Old Testament visions? What about Moses and Aaron after the slaves, the Hebrew slaves were delivered from Egyptian slavery? It says the glory of the Lord appeared to Moses and Aaron. Didn't they see God? And what about when the Lord spoke to Moses, quote, face to face like a friend in Exodus? Surely Moses saw God. It says he saw God. 
Well, what about Isaiah? Isaiah 6, when he says, I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. The Lord was seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. The whole earth was filled. He was surrounded by six cherubim angels who had wings. And with two wings, they covered their feet. With two, they covered. Very specific description of God surrounded by angels. Didn't Isaiah see God? What about Ezekiel chapter 1? When Ezekiel, he's in exile in Babylon. He's longing for his Jewish home. And he's, he's kneeling by the river Kebar in a foreign land. And suddenly, he sees Yahweh. He sees this, this heavenly center on a throne, but the throne is on a chariot with wheels surrounded by heavenly angelic creatures. Like the wheels are like these flashing metal wheels, and they have thunder and lightning. It's super classic rock. What's happening in this moment? Just like wheels and thunder and lightning. You can hear the electric guitar come on. And, and, and it's, it's like Ezekiel's very specific about what he's seeing. Didn't Ezekiel see God? Forget about, not to mention Daniel, who sees the Ancient of Days and all the beasts coming up, vying for the power that belongs only to the Son of Man. What about all those Old Testament visions? Didn't they see God? To which John responds, nope. At least not fully. Not compared to the way we can now see God in Christ Jesus. All those Old Testament depictions of God, absolutely true. Yes, Moses, Aaron, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they certainly saw real visions, revelations of the true and living God. But listen, all those Old Testament visions of God paled in comparison to the clarity and completeness of the revelation of God that you and I get to see in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Only in Jesus Christ do we get the final, fullest revelation of God human beings can possibly see this side of kingdom come. He's coming to you right now. He's present in the room. The author of Hebrews says it this way in the opening lines of, of, his, of his book, Hebrews. This is how the book opens. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Another killer opening. Genius. All these New Testament writers, they're pointing to the same reality. By looking at Jesus, we discover what God is like. A.W. Tozer, a famous prophetic voice from the early 1900s, America Christian Missionary Alliance, early, you know, a hundred years ago, he was preaching just beautiful, fiery sermons that lit up the hearts of the church. And, and he said this, he, he said this, um, what, what comes what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I believe he was right. I think he was right. So he unpacks it this way. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always 
the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And you know, I think Tozer was right. I think he was onto something. Because when you look at Jesus, you discover who God truly is. And then, here's the kicker. When you discover who God truly is, God is like Jesus. God is Jesus. You discover there's something even more important than your mental image of God, and that's God's mental image of you. You know this by knowing Jesus, but then you realize he knows you more than you can know him or yourself. What you think about God is important, but infinitely more important is what God thinks about you. His delight in his children. This is why it's so important to see him clearly. Because when you see Jesus clearly, all the bad, messed up, broken pictures of God that we've absorbed from other people or from maybe our parents' mistakes or our own mistakes or from abuses we've experienced, whether at the hands of Christian authority, we've experienced abuse, all of the broken mental images of God, when we see Jesus clearly, all that bad, broken stuff can finally heal in the presence of the true and living God where then you discover how you are loved by this God, how he delights in you. And you find yourself in the same place Paul was when he wrote Romans 8, and he's like, oh, the depth of the mysteries of the love of God, no height, no depth, no width, no, no unseen, no seen, no death, no disease, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. Revealed in Christ Jesus. Uh, our Lord, the our Lord part, you, you, you submit to his lordship and all that becomes true. He delights. So church family, look at him. Look at Jesus. Fix your vision on Jesus at all costs because there's no cost worth paying to miss Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't turn your eyes away from Jesus because setting your eyes on Jesus, you're setting your eyes on the true living God. So how do you look at Jesus? Well, you live in the Gospels. That's very practically. Jesus has breathed out through the Spirit, through his apostles, his biographies. We have four biographies of Jesus that are trustworthy to lead us to Jesus. How do we look at Jesus? We live in the Gospels for the rest of your life. We read and reread Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and let them wash over your heart and mind year after year. You guys, we just finished. Uh, Aaliyah Persley, uh, one of our pastors, she just finished recording the next week of Bread podcasts to help lead you through the end of the Gospel of Luke. So we just finished Luke as a church. How many of you have been able to at least track along with us in some way with bread? Amazing. Oh, so many hands. So, so we, have, we have finished Luke where we've seen, we've seen Jesus. We've read and reread the story of Jesus. And we're about to jump into the book of Acts. But also live in the Old Testament, not just the Gospels. Live in the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus trusted all of it. And he said, the whole Old Testament was designed to point to me. So you read it looking for me, you find me. Jesus found himself there and then gives us this giant ancient signpost that says, discover me, encounter me, and then live in the book of Acts. Live in the book of Acts, which we just started, we're, we're going to start um, this next Friday in our bread practice, it's the perfect time to practice bread because we're moving from the Gospel of Luke to now the book of Acts. You know what Acts is? It's the history 
of the first Jesus followers learning how to fix their eyes, fix their eyes on Jesus. And then you read the rest of the New Testament, and it's all to encounter the living Lord, not just to gain information or motivation, but for relational union with this loving God. And so, so, so this is why reading scripture is essential for your maturity and mine. This is the reason behind the vision for the whole year with House of Learning, with these House of Learning seminars that we're doing. Where we, take, we take a very important issue in our day that we're all thinking about, and we, we run it through the lens of Christ, who gives us the whole scriptures to see him through. So we encounter Jesus through the scriptures. And when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. When you see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is what God has to say. God speaks, and we see Jesus. Jesus is the Word, literally the living Word. The early church fathers and mothers, their favorite descriptor of Jesus was the Word of God, because Jesus is what God has to say. And it's only by seeing and hearing God clearly that we mature as his children. So that's observation one. See Jesus, see God. But you keep reading, observation two is not only did Jesus make everything, but he also holds everything together. Look at the next verse, Colossians 1, 16, 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. You guys, it's, it's mind-blowing enough that in Jesus everything was made. In Jesus, all of reality was created. It's, to consider that, when you come to the bread and cup and receive the body and blood of Jesus today, you eat the bread, drink the cup, you're receiving the real presence of the maker of reality. That's mind-blowing enough. But think about that last part. Think about that second part there. Jesus, who made everything, also presently continues to hold reality together. Right now, he's holding all of reality together. All the beauty, all the ugly, that tension of your reality, it all exists in the capable hands of Christ right now. All of it. The sunrises, the lonely midnights, the moments of both intimacy and isolation. The moments of belonging and betrayal. All of it is being held together in loving tension by Jesus right now. Right now. And because of that tension, because he's holding it all, you can have faith. This is why you, have, you can have faith. Because he can be trusted. He can hold it all. Only he can. He's trustworthy for you, for his family. And not only do we have faith, but we have, we have hope in, in God's future that all of this bittersweet tension, the ugly that we don't even know how to fix, we don't even want to think about all the reasons we go to therapy, all the things that we don't really know how to unearth, and all the beautiful moments that we want to celebrate and keep thinking about all the time. He holds all of this together 
Which is why all of this will reach his desired end. He holds it all together and, and he will one day unravel it in a perfectly wise way and deal with all the stuff that has hurt you and do justice on your behalf and deal with all the ways that we have hurt and issue forgiveness where we confess. He will reckon. He will... He, John, uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, records Jesus as saying, I am the one with the winnowing fan, meaning I can separate the wheat from the non-edible wheat, the chaff. I only am alone wise enough and strong enough to do this. He will do this. Right now, they're together. He holds it all together. And one day, he will make all the right judgment calls for, on behalf of his family. And so we can trust him because Jesus, the man who is God, not only made everything, but he currently holds everything together. And one day he's coming. In other words, Jesus who created everything is the same Jesus who will one day fully redeem. And he's here. He's here right now with us, present to us through the preaching and the scriptures and the bread and the cup and the fruit of the Spirit as we share life and love and kindness and joy together. He's here. So, so this is what Paul means when he calls Jesus the firstborn. He calls Jesus firstborn. That doesn't mean Jesus was the one who was born first. It, 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 because Jesus is uncreated and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. He wasn't created. Firstborn comes from ancient Jewish culture where the firstborn was the one who had the right to the family business. The firstborn would... He, he, to him belongs the, the property. And so it's less about origin and more about ownership and authority. So when the New Testament calls Jesus firstborn, it means, hey, he pre-existed the universe and now stands as its primary inheritor. Jesus has a right to everything and we do not. We don't have a, reality belongs to Jesus and not to us. Isn't that wonderful news? The only, the only part of reality I'm responsible for is this tiny, tiny little niche pocket of, of very few things I can actually influence. Jesus has it all. Everything belongs to him, which leads to observation number three, that Jesus, the perfect God-man, is the only one who knows how to be fully human. And guess what? He wants to show you how. Jesus didn't just come, be born, die on the cross, and, and resurrect. There's years of teaching and exemplifying and showing us how to live. This is what Paul says in this next passage in Colossians 18 through 20. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love that metaphor. Christ is the head of the body, the church. You guys, that, that idea of him being the head, that means so many things. Think of the head on your shoulders. This is what they thought of. What does your head do? Your head is higher than your body. Jesus is higher than the rest of the church. The head feeds the rest of your body nourishment. The head sends and receives messages to and from the body. This is what Jesus does. 
The biblical authors know this. They had some biology, science, back then, and they knew that the head sends and receives messages. So Jesus speaks to us, and he hears from us. He nourishes and feeds us, and he's higher than us in every way imaginable. He's all of these things and more. You know what this means? You know what this means? It means that only Jesus gets to tell us what it means to be human. Because Jesus is the only one who succeeded fully. He's the only one who fully knows how to do this messy business called being human. And saying yes to that is what it means to recognize Jesus as the head, the beginning, the firstborn among all the other dead humans because one in one humans die except for one. And he leads us into resurrection life. And get this, it's not only, not only his head headship and his supremacy, but his faithful suffering. Paul gets into his, the suffering of Jesus and his shedding of innocent blood. Think of that word shedding or spilling out his blood on the cross for the sins of the world. And because of that, simply put, Jesus has earned the right to define what being human is. Because of his work on the cross, his innocent life, and his blood shed on the cross, Christ has earned the right to define what it means to be human. It's not a right that belongs to anyone else in this room. <laughs> Only Jesus gets to define what's good and evil and right and wrong and what's true and what's beautiful. You guys, we don't define those things. That's Jesus' right. To be a Jesus follower is to say, Jesus, that's your right. I submit to your definitions of what being human is, what it means to thrive, what it means to flourish. And, and here's where the good news kicks in. Are you ready for this? The best news of all. The moment we confess that, the moment we agree with who Jesus says he is, uh, and that we're sinful and we're needed forgiveness and we need healing, at that very moment, Jesus rushes into our lives to reconcile us to God and forgive us and empower us with his own spirit to live more and more faithfully every day in relationship with him, you guys. This gospel, 101, right here, like this is what you're invited to believe. This is what Jesus' followers at the core believe in their innermost. So, so Matthew Ruffay, Dr. Ruffay, one of our elders, he's on the teaching team and this was not a slide. He's like, oh, don't make any slides unless you make that slide. That has to be a slide. This was just, this was just black and white in my notes, but, but red becomes slides. He's like, make this red. Gospel 101. And so I want to ask you, as you read this, do you believe this today? Does this define you more than any other definition of identity? Do you get who you are primarily from that truth? If not, would you consider submitting to Jesus and finding life to the fullest? And again, the way you do that in the community of Jesus' family is through baptism. You do it through the waters of baptism. Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. I am sinful, which means all of the brokenness in the world, I'm complicit in it. Jesus is not. 
He suffered innocently. His shed blood poured out innocently. And that was so that I could be part of his family. Yes, I believe. And, and now he has a spirit to live in me and empower me to live more faithfully. Yes. So I would ask you, do you believe this today? Because um, again, the door is wide open for you to step into agreement and submission and relationship with Jesus and his people. Jesus, the perfect God-human, is offering you peace with God right now. Jesus is offering you peace with God. Like he's coming to you right now. I, I get, um, I, I kind of get terrified at my job right now. Like Christ, he encounters humans through the preaching of the gospel. I'm preaching. My mouth is moving. This is, I, f- I feel very, very un, I don't know, all the uns, unqualified, unworthy. But, but, but yet still Christ is coming to you right now. He's coming to you, inviting you to receive all of the benefits of being in the family of God by confessing that Jesus has a right to the universe and a right to the church and a right to your own body, and we don't. And then believing that his, his plan for your body and his plan for the church, his plan for the universe is good, and, and it's different than any of our plans, and it's better. And to say yes to him is to be saved. Saying no to him is, is to, to be not saved, to be separate from this forever, for eternity. To be separate from God. And so, so hear Christ coming to you, inviting you into his family forever right now. Um, I, I love how New Testament scholar, he's becoming a friend, he's Nijay, his name is Nijay Gupta. And he describes what Paul is doing here in Colossians 1. Paul is saying, whatever your problem, Christ is the solution. This is the Colossians, this is the Colossians theme. Whatever the problem, Christ is the solution. And that's not just a trite Christian bumper sticker. That's not. Because Christ created the cosmos, and he holds it all together, and he sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees all of it. And he has a plan to unravel it and to judge and to actually fix and heal and remove everything that's opposed to him. He has a plan that's the plan that is good. And it involves rescuing everyone who asks for help. All the way to his own blood being poured out just so that you and I would have peace with God. And because of all of that, whatever problem that, there ex- that exists for you, Christ is the solution. And again, that's not trite. That's not just a cheesy Christian answer because Christ is coming to you through a million prongs on a big fork. Like picture, picture a fork with a million prongs on it coming and trying to pick up something. That's it, Jesus is coming to you through the bread, through the cup, through the scriptures, through the preaching, through this moment, through next Sunday, through those relationships and through your own reading and prayer. Christ is coming and calling and wooing and drawing people into saving relationship with the Father. He's coming to you. Jesus Christ comes to you. Whatever the problem is, Christ is the solution. Uh, He's inviting you to receive the benefits of belonging to his family right now. He's coming to you with these benefits. And so uh, this is part two. This is a final part. It's a lot shorter than part one, so you're almost done with his teaching, which is part two. we We just saw part one. Christ and his centrality and his supremacy over all things. And and now the benefit of saying yes to Christ is where Paul ends. Last three verses. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds 
because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So right there, these are the benefits we get from submitting to Christ. And Paul puts them in three, ba- three buckets, past, future, present. Paul loves those three buckets. He uses them all the time, past, future, present. In, in some places, he calls them faith, hope, love. And, and so first, the past. Here's, here's your benefit from eternity past, all the way back. Once, you're alienated from God. Enemies in your minds, evil, but not anymore. He's reconciled you. Hey, you belong here now. You belong here. So picture a royal palace temple, both. It's like a palace temple. So so palace. I I don't know if you've been to a big cathedral in Europe or something. Uh, The Cologne Cathedral in Germany is just just fascinating. Staggering. You walk in, just uh, people built this with their bare hands and thousand-year-old tech, you know, in these amazing, on these hills, and you see the Cologne Cathedral, you walk in, and everything points toward, and I get this feeling, I am a visitor right now. (laughs) I'm a tourist. I'm a full tourist. This is not where I belong. But this is a cathedral, hand-built by God, and suddenly, through Christ, oh, you, you're part of the woodwork. You belong here. You, you, not only is it a pal- temple, but it's a palace where you are, part, you are royal bloodline now. You belong in this family. And it's a temple, too, where you are pure. You are clean. You, are sh- you, you might come in with shame, but you don't have to be stuck with shame here. Shame is real. Don't minimize it. If we have these real feelings of shame, but this is where it's dealt with. This is where it's removed. You belong to this temple palace family where you are now clean and belong. So so what happened so that you're not a tourist in the palace temple cathedral of God, but in this family built with his hands? How are we not tourists here? How do we belong? What happened to make us belong? Here's what happened for Paul. He says, this is the way he says it, the king of the palace, the God of the temple died for you. The property owner, the king of this domain, he died for you and his death made you ready for his presence. The only question now is, do you receive it? Do you submit to Christ's authority? If so, you get this great word, you get reconciliation. How many of you, just that, what, what do you feel when you feel that word? You receive reconciliation. Maybe you have a bittersweet relationship with that word. Maybe you've tried. You've spent a lot of money for reconciliation. It didn't pan out. You're just thousands of dollars poorer. Maybe reconciliation ended poorly for you. I don't know if you've experienced reconciliation with an estranged family member or a friend who really hurt you or maybe you really hurt or both. And you intentionally pursued reconciliation. You even got a mediator And maybe you were reconciled. Maybe you do have a restored relationship. Praise God. Reconciliation is one of the most precious words in the English language, you guys. We long for it. Or maybe not just individual reconciliation. Think of communities reconciling. 
Think of a whole community. I don't know, my brain auto- automatically goes to Romeo and Juliet, the Capulets, Montagues. Like, what would it take for them to reconcile? It's funny. I don't know why my mind goes to Romeo and Juliet, but. But, but imagine, I mean, it, we, we think, we know, we know of whole communities in our lifetime, tribal warfare that has ended in reconciliation. There's these stories. Imagine if 2023 was a year of United States political reconciliation, where the right and left are like, you know what, I actually see, I see what you value on the other side. We laugh, we're like, no, that's crazy talk. But imagine, like, we're in Congress, and they light a bonfire on the Congress lawn, and it's like, you know what? I disagree with your method, but I see your value. I see you. <laughs> imagine. A guy, we can dream. We can dream. But we, and, I mean, we love that idea. We're like, oh, man, reconciliation. And we talk about racial reconciliation, right, and how much work there needs to be done. We hear that a lot, right? How much work there needs. We have a lot of work to do, racial reconciliation in America, because it's true. What is reconciliation? What is it? The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace describes it this way. Reconciliation can be achieved only by dealing squarely and with the greatest sensitivity with the most serious historical grievances and topics of potential controversy. In other words, you have to be willing to go there. You cannot have reconciliation until you're willing to go there. Yes, forgiveness is part of reconciliation, but forgiveness unearned is not reality. True reconciliation requires forgiveness along with, not even prior to, along with the grittiest, most painful, awkward conversations, interactions, even reparations to be paid. How do you see what I've felt, what you've made me feel? How do I see that? Prove it. These are reparations. This is the requirement for reconciliation between individual humans and, indiv- and human communities. So if that's you and me, you know that I'm hurt, prove it. Show me. I see that I've wronged you. It must have felt terrible. It must have made you feel this way. I am wrong. Let's sit there for a while. But then expand that out to communities. What does it require for communities to experience reconciliation? Prove it. Pay up. And then expand that out to, well, what's bigger than human communities? Guess what? It's like that between God and humans, too. Only infinitely more so. Imagine all the hostility, all the enmity, the toxicity that keeps humans and God from being together. And all that wickedness. Picture a funnel a cosmic planet-wide funnel that's, that condensed and concentrated all of that wickedness into the body of Jesus at the cross. In those seven wounds on his body from which poured blood. According to Paul in Colossians 1, this is what happened to Jesus. All the wickedness did its worst to Jesus on the cross. This is what happened to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect meeting place between the true God and true humanity. Jesus is true God and human. And in that true God-human meeting place that is Jesus, in Christ, all our sin was poured into him and in his death on the cross. Which means what? The requirements of reconciliation were met. Full payment, full forgiveness of sins, both 
accomplished by one God in three persons at the cross. In Christ's death, God and the human race were brought back together again, reconciled. Which means now we have a future together. In one word, that's hope. God and humans have a future now. You know, when you reconcile with someone, oh, I can see how our future is going to look. Guess what? We can see how our future is going to look, and it's called hope. This is our future reality. Christ died to present you holy, pure, shameless, and guilt-free in God's presence forever. My friends, that's how your future is going to look. Your future is you standing shameless and pure and accepted and belonging in the presence of not just God, but God's billion-member family. This is your guaranteed future. So you come to the bread and cup week in and week out. You know why we eat and drink? To remind ourselves, Jesus will be faithful to make me that kind of future person. He sees me becoming that person. How could I abandon him today? And that's when the future gets pulled into the present. Every Sunday, we want to see the future today. Because we don't just, we're not just pure in the future, accepted in the future. This is a reality we get to inhabit today. Listen, you know what this means? Change is possible. Transformation today. You can change. There's healing. Think of change in terms of healing. There's healing available for you in the kingdom of God. By Christ's stripes, we are healed, present tense. By Christ's stripes, we're healed. And you guys, sometimes we do see divine healing happen today by the power of God. And sometimes we pray for healing and nothing happens and people die. Sometimes healing is gradual. Listen, however healing comes, we trust that God is a God who heals whether it's physical healing or emotional wounds or relationships that seem too complex to ever fix, be fixed. Or maybe it's a pattern of desire. You're like, why do I have all these desires? And you've asked God, Lord, why do I have these desires if I'm not supposed to have what I desire? And it's been messing with you for a long time. Listen to Paul's words. Now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, if, interesting, there's an if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. See that if? What's that there for? Is there a condition? Wait a minute, all these benefits have a condition? Yes, and... Well, see, that's the present part. You guys, this is your part. This is the benefit today because change is possible today. Look at the present benefit. Here's the benefit. We get to press on, and even in our present struggle, pressing on toward maturity, there is endless grace and power through the Holy Spirit. You guys, the effects of the gospel, they don't happen overnight. Maturity doesn't happen overnight. It's not automatic we know this, right? We talked about this in the first teaching in this series. What we're going to see over and over in Colossians, maturity in Christ is a struggle, but it's worth it. And not only is it worth it, we have all the power we need to succeed and to be faithful in Christ. So Christ is the center and above all, you guys. 
And he invites us into relationship with himself to receive the benefits of forgiveness and belonging in his family. So that's, what we, that's part one and part two. That's the teaching. That's the teaching. Christ above all and saying yes to Christ means we have the benefit. Our past is sealed at the cross. Our, our future hope is guaranteed. And our present, there is an if, but guess what? Christ supports us in that if. He gives us his Holy Spirit for the struggle. And here's why there's an if. I know it feels like a conditional salvation type thing, but it's, it's actually not conditional justification. Here's why. <sighs> because it is a struggle, and I want to emphasize that over and over because the temptation, the easy temptation in comfortable American Christianity is to, is to slip into a prosperity gospel where when you imagine this great savior, you imagine a God who can just give you an escape from your pain. But Jesus promises salvation not in the form of an escape hatch from our struggle. That is prosperity gospel. Jesus as the escape hatch. Jesus as the painkiller. That is not the Jesus of the scriptures. That's the Jesus of the prosperity gospel. What Jesus gives us, the deliverance he offers us, is not an escape hatch to evacuate ahead of the pain, but all the power you and I need to walk through the pain. This is the deliverance. This is the present benefit. I really hope that that comes through right now. I hope that comes through. And I know that's not ex exciting to hear. That's not fun to think about. But it is the full promise we're given. That he will provide, Hebrews talks about, in our temptations, he'll provide a, quote, means of escape. There's that phrase, means of escape. But if you read on, the escape is not a painkiller. The escape is not a promised miracle, an instantaneous deliverance. The escape is the Spirit's power to endure. That is the escape that you are promised. That is the escape you are promised. You have everything you need in Christ to endure faithfully. Don't believe the lie that there is no hope for you. Because if we think of Jesus as the escape hatch and he doesn't escape us, we, we get hopeless. That is, that is the seductive uh, deceit, the deception of the prosperity gospel. So, so Jesus comes to us and says, yes, you have a means of escape. Yes, your future and past are sealed and your present, I will deliver you, but not the way we ultimately would love in our comfort zone. He gives us his full presence and he shows us what it means to live through suffering, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus do that? He shows us how to obey God through suffering. This is my body broken. This is my blood poured out. Come, eat, drink. Drink of my suffering, drink of my pain, drink of my wounds. And I will give you all the power to, to endure wounds, to endure wounds faithfully, to receive wounds and to dispense forgiveness. Just like I did. The, Jesus is 
receiving execution, and he's releasing, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That's what I'll give you power to do. So we come to this Jesus, this God who is man, who is human, and we worship him now. Drew and the band are going to come back, and, and we're going we're gonna to sing. We're also going to invite people to come into the water and to say yes to this wounded healer named Jesus, who is also above the universe. And we're going to say thank you for your blood. We're going to thank him for his wounds. Um, this is, I mean, how do we even respond? Put those three words up on the screen. This is what we're going to do. We're going to respond by worshiping, and we're going to pray. If you need power to endure, come forward for prayer. You don't know how to endure this next thing God has for you, or maybe you're in it. You are in the crucible right now. And you don't see a way out. Let us just pray for you. You don't need to say what it is. You don't need to tell all. But there's pastors that will be up front right now during this, during this song who would love to just pray that the Holy Spirit fills you with fresh power to endure and dispense kindness like you're made of it. We need Jesus for this. And he gives us that benefit. He give, that's what he gives us. Receive that today. So let's stand together. Holy Spirit, would you come? If we have incorrect visions of you, God, correct them today at the, at the bread and cup. If we need power to endure pain and suffering today, come, 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 give it to us. Give us power. Give us strength. If we, if anyone here has not yet followed Jesus, come to the waters of baptism. If you, if you have not been baptized, I'll stand at the, I'll stand at the steps for this song, the steps of the pool, and I'd love to meet you and introduce you to the folks that are doing the baptisms. We'll get you baptized today and cheer you into the kingdom. And everyone, come forward. If, if you want prayer, before we do communion, we're gonna end with communion in about 10 minutes. But for these like eight to 10 minutes, just ask, ask the Holy Spirit for power to endure. Whatever it is, he, he promises power to endure. So come forward right now and we'll pray for you.